Well, it's great to be with you guys this morning. As Kenny said, I'm the teaching pastor. I'm usually over at Southwood. This morning, I want to start with a little bit of trivia that you may not be aware of if you're an average American, that over the course of your life, you are going to spend approximately 90,000 hours at work. Now, if you don't like your job very much, that's probably a terrifying thought. That's a lot of hours, 90,000 hours. In contrast, even if you come to church every single Sunday of your entire life, you will only spend about 9,000 hours here. So just to state the obvious, you are going to spend about 10 times more of your life at work than at church. And yet, for most of us, we assume that what God really cares about is this. When we gather for church, this is what God is interested in. I mean, we're talking about God, we're, we're reading his book, we're singing about God, we're praying to God. This is what he cares about, right? But why would he care about your work? A bunch of meetings and sales calls and expense reports. Why would he care anything about your job as a teacher or a salesman or mechanic or a doctor? Why would God care about that? Well, let me give you the big idea of the morning. I'm just going to give it to you. I'm not going to make you work for it. This is it. The summary of the whole sermon right here. Your work matters to God as much as your church attendance. That's clear when you read the part of the Bible that we're studying this fall, the, the law, Exodus through Deuteronomy. You discover that God's law spoke to, to a Jew's entire week, not just the weekend, not just Sunday, but the work week as well. You read the law and you discover that for the Jews, there was no secular sacred divide in life. They wouldn't have even understood that concept. That would be meaningless to them. To the Jews, God cared about every day equally including the days they spent at work. He cared about that as much as their days of spiritual observance. They knew that God expected them in their job to do it well for his glory and to bless other people. They understood that. And, and so the apostle Paul, he grabs hold of that Old Testament idea and he brings it into the New Testament and the book of Colossians. And he says this in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, meaning in your work, in your vocation, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. It's a fairly radical thing to say. What Paul is saying is when you do your job, you're not just doing it for your boss. You're doing it ultimately for God as an act of worship equivalent to coming to church and singing to God. Your work matters deeply to God. He cares very much about your job. And so to, to just make it as plain as I can, if, if you are an engineer and you come and ask me, how can I be a good follower of Jesus? I am not just going to tell you, well, come to church on Sundays and maybe think about leading a Bible study. Those are good things. But I'm going to say first, be a great engineer because God cares deeply about your vocation. And then also come to church and think about leading a Bible study and all those other things. Your job matters deeply to God. This is particularly important for students to hear. Because I've had a lot of college students over the last 15 years come and, and sit down and talk with me and say, well, Blake, I, I have found Jesus in college. Maybe they came to faith for the first time, or, or maybe college is when they really started to follow Jesus. And they are passionate. They are so excited to follow Jesus, to surrender everything to him, to follow him radically. They're so excited, but in the midst of that spiritual excitement, they are tempted to de-emphasize school. 
And so they say, well, Blake, I want to give my time to eternally significant things. Who cares about grades? Well, clearly not them because they're they're doing like four Bible studies and volunteering at three charities, but they're failing calculus. And so I tell them, well, no, no, don't do that. Because so long as you are in college, that is your job. God has given you a vocation. It's to study. And as long as you're in it, you need to do it in a way that honors him because actually your grades are eternally significant to God. How do I know that? Because in eternity, you're going to stand before Jesus. And he is going to hold you accountable for how you used all of his gifts. And college is a gift. So you will have to answer to God for how you made use of, of this gift, this job you have of studying so long as you are at A&M or Blinn. You have to take it seriously because God cares deeply about your job. Now, why? Why does God care so much about our work? Well, because God created us to work. You see that in the very beginning, if you were to go all the way back to the beginning of the story, Genesis chapter 2, before sin even enters the picture, we're told this. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man, that is Adam, whom he had formed. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Notice where we are in human history. At this point in human history, there are no church services. There's no Bible studies, there's no mission trips, there's no service projects, but there is work. There's work because notice Adam was put in the garden to cultivate it and keep it. God's purpose in making Adam and putting him in the garden is to do these things, cultivate it and keep it. Cultivate means to like make the garden flourish, to maximize the fruitfulness of the garden. Keep it means to guard it, protect it from anything harmful. In other words, Adam was called to be a gardener just like his dad. That is the first human occupation. The first profession of the human race was to be gardeners, just like our Heavenly Father, who is the first and greatest gardener. He plants the Garden of Eden, and then he invites humanity to join him in his work. It's like the ultimate family business. We are called to be gardeners, just like God, to cultivate and keep this beautiful Garden of Eden that he has made. And what that tells us is that work is important to God. You were created to work. It matters to God. Your work is honorable in the eyes of God. He cares deeply about it. You see that as we move forward in scripture to the passages we've been studying this semester. When you get to the book of Exodus, here's what God says to the, to the craftsmen of Israel. He says, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God and wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, bronze, and the cutting of stones. Later in chapter 35, he that is God has filled them, these artisans, with skill to perform every work of an engraver and of a designer and embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet material and in fine linen and of a weaver as performers of every work and makers of designs. So this is interesting. When we think about God's gifts to us, we tend to think about his spiritual gifts. Things like forgiveness and, and the gift of the Holy Spirit and, and the fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, all those wonderful spiritual gifts. Those are awesome. Those are great. Those are gifts from God, but they're not the only gifts from God. You realize the skills and talents and expertise that you bring to your job, that is also a gift from God. 
According to this passage, God gives his people vocational gifts that enable them to do the job to which he has called them. And so these craftsmen are gifted by God for their work. And so just to be really clear, the, cra- the, the carpenter's fine attention to detail, that is a gift from God. And, and the metal worker's strength to hammer that metal, that is a gift from God. And, and the doctor's skill in diagnosing disease, that is a gift from God. All of these vocational gifts that God gives to us prove he cares deeply about our work. It matters to him. He created humans to work and has gifted us to be able to do our work well. That belief is what's behind one of the most beautiful ministries here at Grace Bible Church that I want to share with you this morning. It's called the B Community, and I want to share it with you uh, through a video. So here's the B Community. The Bee Community is a God-centered vocational program for adults with disabilities, a place of belonging, meaningful work, and lifelong learning. As many as 80% of adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities are unemployed nationwide. Our artisans skillfully craft bee products by hand, and every beautiful, quality-crafted product is sold in local markets. Every one of us is made in the image of God. We have dignity, worth, and the divine design to work meaningfully and contribute to society. The Bee Community creates a space for walls to come down between people with and without disabilities to enter into authentic relationships. People of all abilities and talents can use their gifting for the glory of God and the good of others. And we would love for you to contribute your time and talents to our mission. Learn more and apply at thebeecommunity.com slash volunteer. So God created all human beings with dignity in his image to work, to to do significant work. And that includes adults with disabilities. And so the bee community exists to give these adults with disabilities an opportunity to do significant work in a community, a Christ-centered community that builds them up and honors them. We would love to have you help us with the Bee Community. If you would like to donate financially or, or volunteer your time to the Bee Community, you can go to the website there at the bottom, thebeecommunity.com, or send an email to volunteer at thebeecommunity.com. You can volunteer to work side by side with these artisans as they make things. You can volunteer with donor relations or community involvement or, or financial management, whatever it might be. We'd love to have you help us out, either financially or with your time. We also have an awesome opportunity for you parents with young kids. We're going to have a make and take event on November 1st at Southwood at 3.30 p.m. in the afternoon. So November 1st, 3.30 to 4.30 p.m., you and your kids are invited to come join the bee community. Your kids will get to work alongside these artisans to make these these fancy dog treats that they make, and you can take them home with you. You can share them. But the purpose behind this is to give 
parents an easy and profound opportunity to talk to their kids about how we reach every neighbor in our community, including those with disabilities. It'll be a beautiful opportunity to have an important conversation with your kids. So we'd love to have you join us November 1st, 3.30 p.m. at the Southwood campus for our make and take with the B community. So we believe that God has created all of us to work. That's part of what it means to be a human being. He gifted you with the ability to do some job that's significant to him. Your work matters as much as your church attendance to God because he created you to work. So let's start talking about specific jobs. What does the law have to say about specific types of vocations, specific types of work? Now, as we look at these specific laws about specific jobs, we have to get clear from the very beginning, should remember this at this point in the semester, we in the church are no longer under the law. We've said that multiple times before. We believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the entire Mosaic law and set it aside. The result is we in the church are not required to obey all of these specific detailed commands. Those have been set aside. However, we are called to follow the timeless principles that are embedded in each of those specific commands. We're required to follow the the basic timeless principles that God designed into the law. Why do we follow those? Well, because God never changes. And so God's values and priorities for our work never change. So we're required to find those timeless principles in the law and figure out how to apply them in our work. Now, what some of you are going to want from me is, okay, Blake, well, help me find the timeless principle and then tell me exactly what I need to do differently at my job tomorrow morning. And my answer is, I don't know what to say. I I don't know what exactly you need to do differently. Why? Well, because we live in the age of the spirit instead of the age of the law. In the age of the law, God told everyone exactly what to do. It was like a checklist. Do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. It was all laid out. That's not how the age of the Spirit works. The Spirit doesn't work that way in us. Instead, the Spirit guides each of us individually. The Spirit leads us to apply the principles of God in a unique way in our own job. And so I can't give you specifics, and I know that's going to frustrate some of you. I can't do that. Instead, what I can do is give you the timeless principles and then challenge you to honestly and humbly go before the Lord and ask, God, please, through your Spirit, lead me to see how I uniquely, individually can apply these principles at my job tomorrow morning. Okay, so let me give you these these guiding principles, these timeless principles that God has laid out for his people. I'm going to give you timeless principles for three basic types of jobs, so three kind of vocational categories. It won't cover everyone in the room. I wish I could do that, but Matt said I have to finish at a reasonable time, and so I just can cover these three big kind of vocational categories that will cover most of us in this room. So let's start with kind of a a vocational category that we have already introduced, the artists and craftsmen among us. 
So that's the first vocational category. So by artists and craftsmen, what I mean are, well, clearly artists, as well as carpenters and fabricators and graphic designers and website creators and musicians, basically people who use their creativity to to make something new. Okay, so for these artists and craftsmen, as they do their jobs this coming week, what they need to know is that as they use their creative talent, they are actually doing something wonderful. If you are an artist or a craftsman in this room, you need to know you're doing something that's very much like what God did all the way back in Genesis 1. Our God is the greatest creator. He is the greatest artist. He is the greatest designer. He's the greatest content maker in the history of the universe. When you use your creativity, you are being like your dad. You're joining in his creative process, and that's beautiful to God. He loves the artists and craftsmen in the room. He gave you that ability. And so as you go and you use your creative gift, what God wants you to remember as you use that creativity is that your skills and creativity come from him. That gift that you have, that incredible ability that blows people away, that's from God. That's not from you. And so the the point of that is that there is no place for pride in your craft. That's what sets you apart from from all the artists and creators out there in the world. You You do this art, you do this creativity, you do this amazing thing, but you don't do it for the sake of pride. Instead, you do it out of humility to glorify God and bless the world. That's what God is calling you to do, to recognize that these talents you have, they're not yours. They're God's. He gave them to you. In a sense, he loaned them to you for this lifetime so that you can glorify him and bless the world. So all artists and craftsmen, you're you're called humbly to use your talents and opportunities to bless the world for the glory of God. Let me give you an example of this. A number of years ago, we had an amazing graphic designer here at our church named Emily Mills. And she moved to Nashville, but I still follow her online because she is so creative. She has, she has become a nationally recognized sketch artist. So basically, what she does is she will attend a conference or, or a church service. And as she hears the speaker talk, she will sketch in art, graphically, kind of the flow of thought so that everyone attending that church church service or conference can take a copy of her art with them so they can remember it and and come back to it. And how beautiful is that? I mean, can you imagine if every time you left Creekside on a Sunday morning, you had a piece of art to take with you? That's a beautiful thing. Emily is using her God-given talents to bless others. That's what God wants of the artists and craftsmen in the room. That's true whether your art is, is overtly spiritual or whether it is completely secular. You can glorify God if you humbly use your talents to bless others. Okay, that's what God wants for the artists and craftsmen in the room. Let's move on to the second vocational category. These are the people who are near and dear to me. These are the engineers, architects, and builders. I was once an engineer before I was a pastor, so these are my people. I love you. God has a verse for us. These are for anyone in the room who you design things that people use whether that's roads or bridges or houses or vehicles or devices, whatever it might be, you design the stuff people use. Your vocational verse is Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. When you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. 
that's kind of a weird vocational verse, isn't it? You're like, what's going on here? Well, some of you don't even know what that word means, parapet. So for the non-architects or home builders in the room, this is a parapet. It's the little half wall on top of a building. You see, in, in the ancient world, in ancient Israel, families used the flat roof as a room of their house. So they were up on the roof often. You can see the stairway that was on the side of all their houses so that you could go up there. Well, the problem is, imagine if you have young kids and you're all hanging out on the roof and the kids are running around. What's going to happen if there's no parapet? Your kid's going to fall and die. And so home builders were required to do the extra work, the extra engineering, the extra construction to build a parapet all along the roof so that no one could fall and be hurt. Now, most of us don't have flat roofs. This doesn't apply directly to us. So what's the timeless principle? Well, it is this. For engineers, architects, and builders, we are required to prioritize human life and safety over profit. It costs more and takes more time to build a parapet, but they were required to do it because God values human life. Even little kids, God greatly values little kids. They're made in his image. He doesn't want harm to come to any of them. And so he challenges us to prioritize human life and safety over profit in the things that we design and build. So I'll give you an example from my previous career when I was an engineer. I graduated from A&M Mechanical Engineering and and went and worked at a company, a transportation company, and I was tasked to convert a transit bus, like what you'll see taking students around, to an electric hybrid vehicle. And in doing that design work, I discovered a, a flaw with the rear brakes. It was really serious. If, if, if the bus was used in the wrong way, it could have a major accident. And so this was, this was pretty scary, like people could get hurt. And so I told my supervisors about this design flaw, and they told me, stop worrying about it, get back to work. Because they were under a tight schedule and a tight budget and they didn't have time to worry about that. So I go back to my desk and what am I going to do? I'm a young engineer. I'm not high up on the totem pole, but I'm also a follower of Jesus. And I can't design something that could threaten people. Like I, I have to care about human life like Jesus does. And so I wrote a letter and sent it to the owners of the company. And that did not look good for me. That, that didn't look good with my bosses. There was a cost to pay for that. But I was willing to risk that because that's what we do when we follow Jesus. We're willing to risk our careers for the sake of protecting human life. For you engineers and designers in the room, please don't ever become the case study that everyone studies in engineering ethics class, right? Do your best to prioritize human life and safety because everyone is made in the image of God. All right, next category of vocation, the third and final one we're going to talk about, executives, owners, bankers, investors. You get by far the most laws in scripture. Why? Because you get to make the most decisions. You get to call the shots in most of the companies, most of the time, and, and the Bible's really clear, with great power comes great responsibility. God has a lot to say to you because you make most of the decisions. So I'm going to walk you through kind of five uh, timeless principles that the law gives to the executives, owners, bankers, investors, anybody who's hiring anyone um, out there. So let's jump right in. Timeless principle number one, take care of your employees. Key passage here is Deuteronomy 24. Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy. Whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns, pay him his wages each day before sunset because he is poor and is counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. So the, the first thing to notice here is that payroll policies 
are a moral issue. If you are in a position where you set wages or payroll policies and you do it the wrong way, God says that's sin, that is guilt. So when we think about their payroll policies, they lived in an economy that was different than ours. Most workers worked day to day. In other words, their families to have food on this day, the worker had to work on that day. They lived off the money he made that day. So God is saying, if you hire someone, you've got to pay them that day because their wife and kids are depending on it. Now, we live in a different economic context. Most of us are not paid daily. We're paid maybe bi-weekly. That's fine. Again, it's not about the details. It's about the principle. So the principle here is that if you are in a position in a company where you set wages or payroll policy, God expects you to do it with an eye on what is best for your employees. You are expected to graciously and compassionately take care of your employees in such a way that they can take care of their families. So when you set wages and payroll policy, if the only thought that comes to your mind is what is the absolute least I can pay to get this job done, that's not okay with God. You're not allowed to think that way. You have to think about what's best for your employees. Now, is that going to cost your business more in the long run? Well, maybe, but maybe not. Because God designed these laws into the universe. He designed these laws into the human heart. And so the studies are very clear. Employers who sacrificially and compassionately take care of their employees tend to get the best out of the people who work for them, right? So it's better in the long run for your company. The key is, are you willing to sacrifice short-term cost-cutting for the good of your employees, for their long-term benefit? That's what God expects of those of us who set payroll and wage policies. We sacrificially care for our employees. That's how we glorify God there. All right, next principle for the business owners, investors, executives in the room. Tell the truth to customers, partners, regulators, and competitors. Here's the first passage for you, Deuteronomy 19, 14. Do not move your neighbor's boundary stone set up by your predecessors and the inheritance you receive in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. In the ancient world, they didn't have uh, surveys. They didn't have GPS. So they marked boundaries between plots of land with heavy stones. They're big stones, but if you're a really big guy, like you could move it. So if your neighbor is off on a trip, you might just take that heavy stone and move it a few feet over, drop it. Maybe you won't notice. Then maybe he takes a trip the next year, pick it up, move it a few feet over. And after a number of years, you get a lot more land. He has a lot less. God says you can never do that. That that is never okay. You can't take advantage of someone else. You can't be deceptive or manipulative. Here's another key verse for us. Leviticus 19, I love this one. Do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity. Use honest scales and honest weights. That's your proof that the law cared about everything, including what you measure with. The point is, the timeless principle here, is that businesses are never allowed to lie or cheat. Never. You can't manipulate. You you can't take advantage of somebody. You can't use deception. You can't exaggerate. You must be an example of integrity and honesty in your industry. Now, is that going to cost you more in the end? Well, maybe, but maybe not. I mean, think about Enron. They were deceptive. How did that work out for them in the end? Not well. So be the industry leader of integrity and honesty in everything you do towards everyone. Right? Third principle, for the executives, owners, bankers, and investors in the room, actively help the poor with your business. 
Key passage here is Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. What's going on here is that in the ancient world, um, wealth and businesses were really measured in land. So working land. So either as a, as a farmer or, or a vineyard keeper. So you work this land and then you harvested it. And what God required is that business owners, so land owners, would not harvest the entire field. In other words, not maximize profit to 100%. Instead, you would leave the margins of your field unharvested so that the poor alien could come through and gather what they need to survive you would leave some of the vineyard for them to come and gather so they would survive. And Israelites who did that are honored by God. So one of the most famous examples is a guy named Boaz in the book of Ruth. God exalts him. Why? Because he was especially generous as a business owner. Not only did he leave the the edges or gleanings of his field, but he would actually have his workers chop them down and leave them there so that it was really easy for the poor to come and collect the food that they needed. Okay, now how does that play out today? Most of us aren't out there harvesting fields. The poor aren't walking around looking for food on the ground. How do we apply this today? Well, the point is, the timeless principle is, God expects that you will use your business or your asset to care for the poor. In other words, it's, it's not okay to only be generous with your private finances, If you own a business or control a business or an investment, God expects that you will use part of that to bless the poor and lift them up. So let me give you a couple really practical examples, really beautiful things that believers are doing who control business or assets to lift up the poor. One example, developers who leave some percentage of apartments or lots available for HUD voucher families. So think about the developer who's building an apartment complex or is developing land into a neighborhood. They could rent or sell all of that to people middle class or above and maximize their profit. But instead, out of a desire to honor God, they leave some percentage of those apartments or some percentage of those lots for HUD voucher families. So families that are helped out by the government who are just trying to survive, they leave those for those families. They are giving away profit. They're not maximizing their profit. They're sacrificing so that they can lift up poor families and help them come to a place of financial security. That's beautiful. That's a wonderful example. Here's another example. Businesses in our town that participated in our Youth Impact Summer Work Initiative. So Youth Impact is our ministry to at-risk kids here in our community. They wanted to create a summer jobs program for some of them who were like juniors and seniors. These kids needed work experience. They needed jobs. They needed income, but they didn't have skills yet. They didn't have work experience yet, so it's very hard to find a job. So Youth Impact went and partnered with companies and challenged these companies to sacrificially hire these kids who didn't yet have skills and train them up in skills and help them to get experience so they have something on their resume and earn income. That's a beautiful thing. It is sacrificial, though. Those companies could have hired somebody that already had those skills that they wanted, but they're willing to sacrifice their time and money to help lift up these kids so that they have a financial future. That's beautiful. God loves that. That's how to apply Leviticus 19 today. All right, fourth principle for us. For this one, turn to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus 25. This one is going to be a little shocking. 
a little crazy to think about. I have no idea how to apply this one in our economy or our world today, but it is beautiful and wonderful, and I'm excited to share it with you. So principle number four for executives, owners, bankers, and investors, share your wealth with the less fortunate. Look with me at Leviticus 25. Let's pick it up in verse 10. You shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his own property and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. You shall not sow nor reap its aftergrowth nor gather in from its untrimmed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its crops out of the field. On this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his own property. If you make a sale, moreover, to your friend or buy from your friend's hand, you shall not wrong one another. Corresponding to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your friend. He is to sell to you according to the number of years of crops. In proportion to the extent of the years, you shall increase its price. And in proportion to the fewness of the years, you shall diminish its price. For it is a number of crops he is selling to you. So you shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Now jump down to verse 23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Jump down to verse 28. But if he, a poor Israelite, has not found sufficient means to get it back, buy his land back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of the purchaser until the year of Jubilee. But at the Jubilee, it shall revert that he may return to his property. So let me explain. The Jews were commanded to celebrate the year of Jubilee every 50th year. And on that 50th year, the year of Jubilee, all land would revert to ancestral ownership. What that means is that back when Israel conquered the promised land and God divided it up and he gave each family a plot of land, what God is saying is when I did that, that was permanent. That, that division was permanent. So if you have land and you're poor and you need to sell the land for, for money to survive, you can do that. You can sell your land, your neighbor or somebody else can buy your land and can own it for up to 49 years at at the very most. But whenever the year of Jubilee comes, it goes back to you for no money, for free. It it always goes back. So if, if you're following with me, every 50th year, all the land reverts to the families that originally owned it. The result of that was that there was no such thing as generational poverty in Israel when the Jews obeyed the law of Jubilee. Couldn't have generational poverty because every 50 years God hit reset and every family got to go home. But on the flip side, there was also no such thing as massive inherited wealth in Israel. It wasn't possible. Now, what do you do with that? Well, I don't have any idea how to apply this. In our economy. I'm not talking about a particular political or economic policy here. I'm talking about our hearts as free followers of Jesus. What do we do with the land or wealth or assets that God has blessed us with? Well, what God expects, the timeless principle here, is that if you are blessed with great wealth, God expects you, number one, to recognize it doesn't belong to you. You saw what God said the land is mine. It's always true. Every dollar you have, every acre of land you have, every possession you have, it all belongs to God. It's not yours. 
God has loaned it to you for a limited time, and you are expected to use this loan to lift up families who are in need. That's what God expects. You'll use this wealth, this inheritance, this land, these assets he's given you to bless others, to lift them up out of poverty to help them. With great wealth comes great responsibility to care for the poor. So let me give you a a practical and beautiful example of this. It's stunning. It happened about a week and a half ago to me. Um, I lead a charity here in the community called OnRamp. We gift reliable vehicles to families in need. And so I was interviewing at a coffee shop a new client with her two sponsors there, and we're we're talking about her need. Um, This is a young mom who has seven kids, and she is working herself to the bone. Full-time job plus every hour of overtime they'll give her, and yet with all of that work, all she can cover is rent, food, and health care for her and her seven kids. There's no money left over for a vehicle. Well, in this town, if you don't have a car, you lose everything. She won't be able to get to work, then she'll lose her home, then she'll lose her kids. She'll lose everything. So she desperately needs a vehicle. In the meantime, she's using Uber at 150 bucks a week to get to and from work. You think about what somebody's earning at minimum wage, 150 bucks a week, she's got nothing. She's in a trap. She's never going to get out without help. And so we accepted her as a client. We're excited to help her. But with seven kids, she has to have a very big vehicle, like a big SUV or minivan, and those are expensive. And so we're sitting around this table at the coffee shop, and I'm telling her, like, how excited we are to accept her as a client. But I'm telling her, man, we need to pray because this is going to cost a lot of money for the kind of vehicle that you and your kids need. We need to pray that God will provide. On average, it costs on-ramp $8,000 to to provide a reliable three-row vehicle like she needs. So I thought, $8,000, that's a lot of money. So let's pray. So right there in the middle of Starbucks, we prayed for her. We prayed out loud that God would provide. And then after that prayer, she left with one of the clients who's going to give her a ride home because she can't get the Starbucks on her own. And and the other sponsor and I kind of debriefed the situation. And in the middle of debriefing, a young college student walked up, a young girl who had been studying at a table nearby, and she inadvertently overheard the whole conversation. She came up and said, I'm sorry, I hope I'm not offending you. I overheard this story, and, and my heart was stirred. How can I help? I, I'd like to donate towards a vehicle for this lady. And it's beautiful. It's wonderful. So I take out a card, and I give her, and I'm thinking, you know, maybe this college student could help 20 or 30 bucks. And she's asking, how long will it take to get there? And I was like, well, it's going you know, to take a while. And she's like, well, how much does it cost to just go buy it for her today? I was like, well, it's like $8,000. And she said, well, it's interesting. I, I just received an inheritance. My family sold land. And I received part, and I've been praying that God would provide me a chance to tithe to somebody in need, and I have $8,000 to give you today. And so a young college student gave us 8000 bucks. So now we can go buy a reliable vehicle for this mom and rescue her from the situation that she was in. That's beautiful. That's what this looks like today. If you've been given wealth, if you've been given an inheritance, you were expected by God to use that wealth to lift up families in poverty and help them out. Beautiful, beautiful example. Okay, so final fifth principle for the executives, owners, bankers, and investors in the room. Lend your money graciously. Our key passage is Leviticus 25. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and is unable to support himself among you, help him as you would an alien or a temporary resident so he can continue to live among you. Do not take interest of any kind from him, but fear your God so that your countrymen may continue to live among you. You must not lend him money at interest or sell him food at a profit. 
Now, as, as best we can tell, like I said, we're, we're not under the details of the law. I, I believe that in our economy, in our context, it is okay to loan money at interest. That is okay for us, but there is a timeless principle here. If you are in a position where you are able to loan out money, God expects that you will never charge oppressive interest, you will never use that loan to trap someone in debt, and you will never take advantage of the poor. And that's really important to talk about because these things are a major problem in our country right now that's especially affecting poor people. So I'm going I'm to go ahead and make some people uncomfortable. I'm just going to call out some places where I see this in our community. Really bad stuff happening. First example, payday and title loans. And many cases, if not most cases, payday and title loans are immoral. There may be companies out there that are really trying to care for and lift up the poor through those. I haven't seen that yet. All the ones that I have seen, I see businesses taking advantage of the poor for profit. And that is never okay. You may not realize this, but the average annual percentage rate of a payday loan in America is 400%. That is evil. It's just straight up evil. And people will say, but the poor person says yes to the loan. It doesn't matter. They're desperate. They'll say yes to anything. That doesn't make it moral to offer them that. It's never okay to take advantage of the poor for the sake of profit. Can't do that. Give you a second example. Again, from OnRamp, we met with a client not too long ago who, uh, a single mom at the time, she was trying desperately to not lose her job. Again, she didn't have a vehicle, so she would lose her job, home, kids, everything. So she saved up $1,000 to go buy a reliable vehicle. $1,000 is exactly how much you need to not have to go buy a vehicle. You're going to get trapped. And so she went and she checked with the dealerships, and unfortunately, dealerships don't, don't interact at that price point, so she had to go to kind of the secondary market. And in fact, no businesses in our town would offer her anything except one, a really shady place. Where a salesman came out and met her and talked with her and said, well, I've got a car for you. If you will give me $10,000, I will sell you this car that has 300,000 miles on it. Now, just to be clear, unless it's a Ferrari, they're charging $10,000 for a car with 300,000 miles. That's nuts. She didn't have that. He knew that. So he said, well, here, I'll make a deal with you. You have $1,000 right now in your pocket. Give me the $1,000. I'll give you the car today. And then come back in two weeks and give me 750 bucks, just 750. And come back two weeks after that and give me 750 bucks, just 750. If you add it up, what is she paying monthly for a car with 300,000 miles on it? $1,500. That is wickedness. If I wasn't a Christian, I would burn that place to the ground. That is straight up sin. There are so many crooks in our community who are taking advantage of the poor who have nowhere else to turn for the necessities of life. This is an opportunity for God's people to stand in the gap and loan money at little or no interest to families who have nowhere else to turn. So let me give you some beautiful examples. There are Christians out there and ministries out there who are offering microloans at no interest or very low interest to people, to families who have no other place to go for credit so that those families can start a business or um, can purchase a vehicle so they can get to work or can go back to school and get an education. That's a beautiful thing. Those ministries, those Christians aren't making the profit that they could have. They're saying, I'm willing to sacrifice my profit to help lift up a family. 
I'll give you another example. There's some churches in the news recently that did this amazing thing. They raised hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay off medical debt of at-risk families in their communities. One in Dallas that just did it. What a beautiful thing. Because for an at-risk family, medical debt traps them. There's no way they're ever going to get out of that. And so the churches come along and say, we're going to rescue them. We're going to redeem them from that debt. We're going to help lift them up. What a beautiful way to use your wealth, to lift up families in poverty. That is how executives, owners, bankers, and investors, you use your vocation to honor God and bless this world. Now, I know what's going through some of your minds at this point. You're hearing all that I'm saying, and what you're thinking to yourself is, Blake, that sounds so nice, but it's not realistic. That's crazy talk, Blake. That's way too costly. That's way too complicated with my board of directors, with my investors. I could never make that work. That's, that's just not realistic. If I, if I do what you're saying, my business will fail. Well, actually, that's exactly what Israel said. For most of the Old Testament, the Israelites said no to these commands. Why? Because they were so costly. The Israelites, over centuries of time, they decided to turn a blind eye to the poor. They decided to extort and take advantage of their employees. They, they decided to, to no longer follow God's law of jubilee. They didn't obey the law of jubilee for most of the Old Testament because it was just too expensive, too costly. So what did God do? He kicked them off his land. He sent them into exile because they put profit over obedience. Now, let's be clear. If you take your business or your investment and you apply these laws to it, it will cost you. Obedience always costs us, but it will be worth it in the end, I promise you. Whether in this life or certainly in the next life, it is always worth it to obey God even when it costs you. So let's make this personal. In your own business, with your own investments, assets, and inheritance, what comes first? Your profit or your obedience? Let's be clear. There's nothing inherently wrong with profit so long as it says second to obedience. If you will always put obedience first, God will honor that. But that's scary. That's a risk that will cost your business. That could cost you your job, your career. What do you do with that? Well, you got to do what Israel was called to do. You got to trust. You got to trust that God is big enough to take care of you. Are you willing to trust God even when something doesn't seem to make economic sense? Are you willing to trust God with these principles and these commands even when they seem economically crazy? Will you say, yes, God, I'm scared. I I don't know what to do. It seems so costly. It seems so complex. I I don't know how to put it together, but God, I'm just going to obey you and leave the results to you. That's what God wants. He expects that in your job, in your vocation, in your business, with your assets, with your inheritance, you are willing to trust him even when it seems economically crazy. That's how we follow Jesus in our work. If you're not honoring God at work, you're not honoring God, period. If you are honoring God at work, even when it costs you, even when it's painful, God will honor that. So let's pray for God's help. Heavenly Father, we confess that our jobs and our businesses, our investments, our houses, our wealth, they all belong to you. We sang earlier this morning about surrendering everything to you, and that includes all this stuff. So we surrender our careers, we surrender our jobs, 
We surrender our bank accounts and our retirement accounts. We surrender our land and our houses and our cars. We place it all at your feet. And for any of us, Lord, who just aren't there yet, it's just too painful, too hard to do that, we pray that your spirit would both convict and encourage, that you would both challenge them and break them down and at the same time inspire them to see how their business, their job, their career, their assets, their land could be a tool for great blessing for the world and glory for you. We pray, Heavenly Father, that for all of us, you would humble us and help us to give you everything that we have and everything that we are, even when it's costly and painful. We pray, Lord, that as we seek to honor you through our jobs and our vocations, that you would use that to show people the beauty of Jesus. We pray that in how we do our jobs as artists, as musicians, as engineers, as home builders, as bankers, as managers, as employers, as owners, we pray, Lord, that in how we do our jobs, people would see that we are distinctly Christian that we wouldn't do our jobs or run our businesses like the world does, that instead we would do it in a way that is so radically gracious and compassionate and truthful and honest and ethical that the world would say, wow, there is something amazing going on there. We pray, Lord, that we would honor you seven days a week, as much in our jobs as we do on Sunday mornings. Take our entire lives, Lord Jesus. You are worthy of it all. We offer it to you. In your name and for your glory, we pray. Amen. May you guys have a blessed and obedient work week. Take care.